Hello and welcome to Disability Movement Etc. Podcast that is starting another year and we'll keep our momentum going because we're now on episode nine or something like that. I am Dr. Andrew Colombo Dagavito. I'm John Lepke, soon to be MFA. <laughs> yes. Uh, and today, John and I are slowly working ourselves back in in the new year. And so we're going to chat just briefly today. We don't have an interview, so it's just going to be us. And we, we just miss being in your ears. So here we are. How was, how was your new year, John? New Year is good. I uh, uh, listeners probably tired of hearing about this from me, but I live in the very cold Canadian part of the prairies, and we are doing our lovely. Let's have thirty degree C temperature spikes between minus ten and minus forty, and my CP body is not a fan of that. It's also my first yeah. New Year where I'm full time freelance, so figuring out like you know, oh, um, uh, you know, uh, things slowly ramp up in the, the freelance writing area of the world. So, um, but got some exciting projects on the go, have a sort of record breaking month uh, on all of my metrics in front of me. Um, so just reminding myself to, you know, live within that crip time paradigm, say that three times fast, uh, yeah. to actually have, you know, some, some um, adapted productivity, I guess you could call it. Yeah, I said that's something I am completely unfamiliar with. The idea of being a freelancer and having to completely make up your schedule. Usually I'm dictated by when I have to go and teach and Friday faculty meetings and all those kind of fun things. So it's a different type of crypt time for sure. Yeah, I, uh, owning one's own business as a disabled person is a, I mean, lots of us do it, uh, obviously, mm -hmm. um, or, or we do it as a side hustle even besides. But yeah, I think uh, I've always sort of, well, not always, for probably the last, uh, I guess, seven years at all the roles that I've worked in, I've had a, a heavy amount of control over my own schedule. Um, so uh, yeah, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of practice and still was like, Oh, you know, still got to remind yourself that you can take the day off that uh, it's not, um, you know, I did yeah, that's hard. It's two o'clock here. Now I did not get to my desk until about one. <laughs> uh, I just decided nice. this morning was a bit of a, a lost cause body and brain wise. So, um, yeah, I had one of those days yesterday. We just, for whatever reason, had a bunch of meetings in the morning, did some stuff, got home at like one o'clock and I was like, you know what? I need to move some stuff. We need to take a break. And I think it's, I think as a, as a disabled person, it's hard to do that. It's hard, I think, to advocate for yourself to take time or to acknowledge like, that you can take time off or you can have a half a day or a day because so much I think of our existence is tied into work that if we're not working, we're not doing what we should be doing. So we end up feeling guilty. And then that time off that we should be taking is never really time off, is it? We as disabled people are conditioned in the same way that non-disabled people are to plan as if every day is going to be our best day and our most productive <laughs> selves. Mm -hmm. And I think the biggest challenge for those that I talk to who who do control their schedule in, in the same way that I do is like, okay, what... Uh, do I plan everything for my worst day, in which case not enough is going to get done? Or do I plan for the middling day? Do I plan for the best day at certain times of the year? 
Um, you know, I go through these phases and I can't remember if I've talked about this on the podcast before, but I go through these phases where I'm, I, uh, the last one was probably four or five years ago, <laughs> but looking at, um, like really taking in productivity advice. And now I'm, I'm thinking a lot in terms of cripping up that productivity advice and, and thinking about how productivity doesn't have to be, I mean, it is inherently tied to capitalism. So, you know, it's not, uh, it's not suddenly going to be productivity isn't suddenly going to become part of disability, the core tenant of disability justice or anything. But just thinking about how advice that that we see in sorry, these mainstream self-help state um, places can actually be, can actually be used in a way that is, that is empathetic, that is crip aligned, that is disability culture aligned at least better than it, than it already is um because there are just so many things that i look at that I, I think oh like i see if i crypt that up a bit i i see you know where we're going and what we're doing you know even if it's some business bro thing even if it's gary vaynerchuk saying well we've got a document over create well isn't that what a lot of disability led blogs and articles and websites are trying to do yeah, I, I struggle with that a lot because particularly as someone with ADHD, executive function is already a struggle. But then, you know, layering on top of that, uh, now that you know, I'm no longer a student I and I have, I do have a luxury of making my own day as a academic faculty, right? There are certain things that I can't move in my day. But for the most part, nobody is really checking in all the time. And not you know, till tenure it, it review. Can get really easy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's, you know, it can be easy to particularly writing, right? The, the writing one is always the hard part because, you know, teaching, you can't move. Your, st your students are going to show up. And if you're not there, people are going to notice. And, you know, most of our service obligations, they, they meet semi-regularly, but most of the time the work you're doing is scheduled around some kind of meeting or some kind of collaborative effort. And writing often is what most people find to be the most important part of our job. At least that's what is weighted or critiqued the most. Um, and but nobody's nobody's there saying, "Hey, sit down and write this thing," or you know, block off your schedule for this amount of time and sit down and write. And although I've become a writer <laughs> in my adult life, I never sought out to be a writer. I never. Uh, I didn't. I never always felt competent in my writing, right? To say that I'm I'm somebody who seeks this out, like I got a C minus in my high school senior English class, and I think I got B's or something like that in my whatever uh, in my undergraduate degree in those you know required lit classes you have to take in the first couple of years. And I I don't know if that's a part of potentially my ADHD and not kind of always struggling with that aspect. And, and not having necessarily the feedback. But um, now in my adult life, I've realized that one, I write constantly, but writing also is very empowering, right? And particularly as a disabled person, and I've recognized that writing for disabled communities is immensely powerful and it's immensely needed. And you're right, there's that element as a disabled person who writes to make sure that stuff is out there so that it is cataloged and, and it can be uh, archived and acknowledged and that it exists, right? And and as a writer, I'm sure you can uh, relate to this, that even if you set aside a time block on your schedule, 
when you sit down, whether that be at your desk or somewhere else to actually write, it's not like it just <laughs> starts flowing out of you, right? It's not like writing just happens. And that can be a hard part too. Um, and I'm wondering, you know, what are, and I can share some things too, but what are some of the things you do to, to, to help you with, with scheduling, with kind of your day-to-day -day stuff, also acknowledging like building in time for self and home care and all that? Yeah. Like I don't, uh, well, for me, I don't, I don't have a home care uh, thing except like I don't have somebody scheduled to come in my life is yeah, much I just I, mean, I, I know like you your yeah general hair yeah uh, like care like, like take you know yeah I gotcha I, so my my approach so to speak is um and this is productivity advice uh partially because I'm thinking about this for an article and a possible book idea so it's been swirling around in my head um you know there's a quote from James Queer uh, uh, who wrote a book called Atomic Habits and mm -hmm. I think this actually comes from ancient philosophy, or he's pulling from ancient philosophy when he talks about it. He says, you don't, you, you don't rise to the level of your goals. You fall to the level of your systems. And so I learned the hard way near the end of my undergrad and into grad school. Up until about the first year of grad school, I did not have a to-do list. It was just whatever I, I felt I could Same. put it all in my head and do it. And now I've become that person where if it's not in the calendar or in my notion, it doesn't get done. Um, so part of that is tools. Um, I use Calendly to book everything from work meetings to, you know, sending apologies to friends being like, I know this link says one hour meeting. <laughs> I don't consider chatting with you an administrative obligation. However, <laughs> yeah. this is. This is part of it. For me as a freelancer, I think far too many writers, freelancers are afraid to, to ask for extensions for deadlines. Um, I probably ask for extensions on deadlines for 40 to 50% of the thing that I work on for, for various reasons. Sometimes it's just like the body is not playing nice on the day that I scheduled to put this draft together. And sometimes it's just, well, I gave myself a pretty, I, I, but I communicate with my editors to do that. I think one of the, Another thing, and of course, I could ramble on forever, but the uh, as listeners well know, I think for me, it's about knowing how to unstick myself. So luckily, or unstuck myself. So luckily with journalism, right, largely I'm, I'm asking questions and people are providing me answers. So one of my, uh, there's a thing in journalism called, um, well, I guess it's called multiple things. But there are things like the news pyramid, right? These very traditional ways of putting articles together. So I can go back to that for a first draft. I What I'll often do is what's called quote stacking, where you just take, right, quote, paragraph, quote, paragraph, quote, paragraph. And then I've got something, right? I, I, I happen to love editing. If any professional clients are listening, I'd love to do more editing. Um, however, that allows me to, to have something. And sometimes, sometimes it does flow. Oh, for me, I am one of those people where my brain is constantly noodling on things in the background. I, I've had to accept that that's how my brain works. Um, it puts a real wrench in the works when you're thinking about work-life balance, when your brain won't stop thinking about work. But I've just had to accept oh, yeah. that a small part of my brain is always going to be doing that. Um, and so it, it's for me, it's knowing that like 
if I have a really good lead, as in if I have a really good first intro to something, then I know it's probably going to flow from there. If I'm struggling and find the other strategy that I do is, I mean, I, most writers do this, I think, you know, uh, in all caps or TKTK, which is um, stands for to come to come because it doesn't naturally occur in English. So it's so that you control control F and delete them all before you send it to press. You know, write good lead here. <laughs> you know, I, I don't let, uh, for me, I'm not a write a sentence, edit a sentence, write another sentence, edit a sentence. I am. Get it down. Get it down reasonably clean. Get it down and then write. Need data here. Well, I'm not going to waste 45 minutes on my first draft finding data because most of the time I already know from my research that it exists, right? So data here, context paragraph, quote, and then just keep going. And if I'm really stuck, then I go back to my interviews and I just pull every quote that I think I'm going to use. And then normally a lead will flow out of that. And then I am I am back on the oh, sure. I'm back on the horse. Yeah. From what I'm hearing is it's a it's a lot of balance, right? It's a lot of trial and error and it's a lot of kind of figuring out what works best for you and your body. And I think the piece I struggled with for a long time was actually acknowledging when my body's telling me, hey, you got to take a break here or none of this is going to get done. Yeah. And you <laughs> because I would always have, push through. And you probably don't. I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to pathologize here. I, I guess I'm more pathologizing myself. But like, you know, my my physical disability has a way of swinging the hammer at me um, because I... I don't know that this is part of the disability. It's just purely anecdotal. Nobody uh, get mad at me as a health reporter. However, I've never met a CP that didn't have a ridiculous pain tolerance. So like if something hurts, I know that some like if yeah, my brain is really willing to acknowledge hurts. that it hurts, yeah. it means I need to go and, and uh, do something. If it's, if it's risen above the general accepted pain tolerance, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's um, pretty bad. And, and, you know, one of the other things that I, I sink into, and I'd be curious about your thoughts on this from within academia is, I find this very true of freelancers, I find this very true of creative writers that go off and, and write professionally, is that in whatever context, is that there is this perception still holds out that if you quit your job, you know, you're suddenly going to have way more time to write. <laughs> the reality is, mm -hmm. if I get three hours of writing, that's an exceptionally good day of time to write. And so, because yeah. I'm interviewing, I'm invoicing, I'm connecting with colleagues, I am, I am disabled in the midst of an ongoing pandemic. So I am also helping, you know, supporting people in my circles. And um, yeah, uh, the the best advice I can give for anybody trying to be a freelance writer is uh, learn how to write quickly. <laughs> I'd say for me, it's you're right. When you sit down to write, like if I get an hour and a half of writing in a in a day, like that's pretty good. I mean, to to have a half a day or a day to do something, one, I, my brain just can't focus for that long on a writing task because writing takes an exorbitant amount of mental energy, right? And there's even days where if I do get a long good session in, I physically feel tired, you know? And I, for me, what, in terms of going back to productivity and care and that idea, and as we start the new year with inevitably people have their, you know, New Year's resolutions to 
do whatever more. And what I did last year was I didn't have a New Year's resolution. So my resolution was to not have a resolution because most of the time, right, it ends up being something that is, you know, be healthier, work more, spend time with family. And I think that we can do those things, but it's really easy to slip back into just a general mundane kind of as things get busy, right? I mean, it's, it's hard. So you have to be intentional with time. And not having a resolution last year really made me focus on the intention side of it. Like, why, why am I stressing out about this particular piece of work? Is it a deadline that I have set for me, right? An editor wants something back by X date or something needs to be, you know, an application needs to be submitted by such and such a time? Or is it my deadline? Is it just, I want to get this paper done by X day? And what I realized through last year was most, not everything, but most everything around academia was my timeline. It was when I wanted to get it done. And there's, and it quickly became like, the idea of putting, you know, happiness on the other side of a goal, right? Oh, I'll, I'll take a break once this paper is done with. And then it takes me an extra week or two weeks to finish that paper. And so then maybe I don't even get to take a break because by then, you know, my holiday is over and I have to start teaching again and you're on to the next thing. And so for me, for all the, you know, different productivity systems we have, and I could certainly detail all the different softwares and things I've tried. I mean, I've tried out so many things over the years, so many things. And just recently, I like, you know, I had a calendar app I, that had my to-do list and all these different things, stuff I even paid for. And I went back to all of Apple's stuff. Like I'm using Apple's mail client, Apple's calendar and Apple's reminders app. And it's like, that does pretty much everything I need. And it's already baked in. I don't got to pay for anything. And I've, I've, been noticing kind of the cool thing just because it's an Apple device is that if you send me an email, John, and I don't have your contact, Siri at the top will say, hey, do you want to save this contact? So, I've been able to like, you know, save people's contact information that I didn't have yet or add a reminder really quickly because the text of the calendar says that there's something due. And, you know, they all have that and, and there's all sort of pros and cons of any different type of software. And again, as somebody with ADHD, trying on all those things, <laughs> I find is a way of like anti-productivity where it's like, I'm going to get my system right. I'm going to spend a lot of time there. But then once things feel okay, I'm going to shift it up entirely again. Yeah. It's like, it's like, it's like when we like, I don't know your process as a writer, but I do meet, I do know plenty of, um, and if my supervisors are listening, I was guilty of this with my MFA thesis constantly or creative projects. So technically thesis, um, Constantly outlining and re-outlining and then going, oh, but like, you know, it centered around these like 13 stories. But what if it was 15? And what if, you know, and da 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 And, um, you know, not uh, not breaking through that barrier. I also find for me, and this connects to the, the ableism of academia in general, I find it much easier to do the freelance work. Like my process for that is streamlined and fairly quick and efficient. My academic process, not nearly as refined. I think no. it's really easy to fall into the trap of thinking because I'm really quick at this, I can be equally quick at this. And I would say the only crossover is that I'm a reasonably quick editor, which is that it's been what I've done in various ways professionally for quite a while. Yeah, for me, it's 
particularly since I'm in academia all the time, is I really do have to set boundaries. And it took me a long time to learn that, that I don't have to answer emails after a certain time. Like on the weekends, I don't need to open my phone and and check emails or, or anything like that. I can set blocks of time and say, this is for me. Or just recently, um, because we have a 10-month-old puppy, it's the morning I get up and we go for a walk and then I come back and I make my coffee and have my breakfast and then I might... Uh, do some stuff in our home gym or I might walk over to the climbing gym, which is near our house. And then I usually will get to my desk like 10 a.m., 11 a.m., somewhere around there. And I'll try to write for an hour or so. And then I'll finally open my emails. And then I'll I'll typically, because I've, I've learned that I've got a good head of steam usually in the morning and then I got to fizzle out in the middle. So, I try to do my tasks that don't take a whole ton of mental energy in the afternoon. And then I get like a, I don't know, it's maybe like a second gasp, usually right before bed. Like there's some, it's usually something creative, right? Something will pop into my mind. Like you said, there's always a part of your mind working on work. And I found it was always really hard to shut that off. And then that's what would make me feel really bad, right? But if because I think it might be because of the work we do, but when we engage in topics that, that are intrinsically interesting to us that also happen to align with our work, it's easy for those lines to get really blurred. Um, and so I've really tried, and that's my, that's my goal. I'm not calling it a resolution. It's my goal for this year is to keep doing it, but just to, to build in intentional time for myself and boundaries with my work and, and separating where work starts. And I begin because I think, as an academic, or even as a writer, it gets really easy for all that stuff to get blurred in together. And, you know, as we've learned through the pandemic, our jobs don't care about us. <laughs> they will continue to exist and go on long after we are. And so, if we want to be healthy and we want to actually maintain some general existence of well-being, that we have to prioritize that and be intentional with it just as much as we are with all the other deadlines. So like, yeah, I absolutely put into my calendar like break time. Like just just sit and break. Like even if it's just reading if it's reading or maybe it's just sitting and staring out my window for 10, 15 minutes just because I can. Like that's my time. And too often I think I think in the work world we're expected to, but I also think as disabled folks, we sometimes tend to be more accommodating for others than of our own needs for a number of reasons, right? But particularly around the, as, as we are now, right? With, with everything that's going on. And, and I just, um, I read something interesting about how um, essentially we're, because the, the patterns of the world have changed so quickly, that's why we're all at this sort of, at least many of us at this level of just mental exhaustion. Because, you know, the way this, this piece had, had described it, it's our brains tend to look for patterns, right? It, it likes patterns. And the more it's used to something, the easier it is to do, right? Like you know, when we get up in the morning, 
we know the strategies of brushing our teeth, right? We, we know the steps to it. We can walk through it half asleep or even asleep at, at, for most of us. But when something changes and we have to relearn that, well, our brain has to reconnect and, and figure out the most efficient way to do it. And because our world has been in such flux on like major scales of things, that it's really hard for a lot of us to like find a new pattern. And so for me, I think in this coming year, I'm going to focus less on productivity, like less on the, on this idea, this construct of being productive and just more on like being intentional with my time and being focused on that time when it's supposed to, right? So when it's my writing block, I'm focused on writing and not something else. And when it's my teaching block, I'm teaching and not doing something else. Or that makes even if I'm in a meeting that's very boring, being intent and, and focused on the meeting instead of also checking my emails and also doing those other things which take me to a million other places. Uh, but speaking of that, I know you have a topic for today that we want to discuss yeah. a little bit. So let's yeah. So let's I've been doing it. some, um, you know, one of the I've been doing some some research and, and looking not in the academic sense of the word in the non-academic uh, falls onto your Twitter timeline and you fall down a rabbit hole sort of way about um chat gpt and because i'm finishing up the mfa and because you know my brain is in a little bit more of an academic space than usual seeing folk uh, there are two sort of groups on my social media accounts when it comes to people there are the shall i call them pedagogically inclined um and rhetoric teachers and things like that who are saying uh, you know, students may use chat GPT, but that's not, you know, we're going to have an, another moral panic about plagiarism as if plagiarism hasn't existed forever in various forms. And that often it is a what is going on in a student's life or a faulty pedagogy teaching practice in some way, um, even if that is outside of the control of the educators thinking, you know, uh, an inability to move a deadline if you're a sessional who has to file something with a dean, you know, whatever that is. And then the other camp is, oh my God, can I find a tool to check? How am I going to check? I'm going to treat everybody with suspicion because I've seen it once. And oh my God, it's going to ruin our our version of my least favorite term in academia, academic rigor. And whatever are we going to do? Um, and I'm curious because, you know, I have an English degree. And so these are often conversations that end up, you know, disproportionately in a way affecting the arts because in the humanities because there is such a heavy focus on 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 writing and on uh one's own personal thought I'm curious for you as as somebody who works more in the kinesiology body and movement you know whether chat gpt is a topic of conversation your thoughts as somebody who is who has said on the podcast before about creating you know accessibility within your classroom like how do you view this um, panic, uh, panic over plagiarism when it comes to these AI and digital tools. Yes. Yeah, so do you want to, for those maybe who don't know what chat GPT sure. is, you want to give a yeah. quick like elevator pitch? Yeah. Oh God. Uh, yeah. Let's elevator pitch, maybe elevator description. Um, so chat GPT is a tool by open AI where uh, in, in simple terms, um, open AI has also other products. You'll have like what we've seen uh, a lot of the conversation about AI generated tools and what's called generative AI is talking about like 
uh, some of these arts-based ones that, that, that can give you a profile picture that looks like another artist, but is really just ripping off another artist in a way. Um, ChatGPT is the text version. So, so basically, you, from, yeah, from my understanding, you, you essentially give, there's, a, there's an input box, you, you give the chatbot some guidance, some descriptors, yep. and then it makes it up. Right. Like, I think one I heard uh, somewhere was like, give me, a, you know, a Shakespearean style sonnet on cheeseburgers or something like that. You know, and, it, it, and, and the chatbot comes up with 16 ABAB rhyming stanzas on cheeseburgers. And I think so. Yeah. So hopefully everybody's caught up. If you, if you don't know what chat GPT is. You'll soon figure out there's inevitably it will come into your timeline as as millions of other articles come up and more and more of our moral panic exists around this topic of, of creation and ultimately, as I saw in one article, the destruction of the modern writer, essentially. And I think... I can't help but laugh at that idea. Yeah. I think for me, any any AI technology, any any artificial technology, whether it is is actually generative or not is always going to be limited by the code that it's created by right it's it's yes, always going to be derivative a, yeah it's and it's always going to be as fallible as the human that created it and i mean until we reach a point where there's like fully sentient ai that's coding its own stuff i don't think we're going to be in any trouble of ai completely release you know destroying certain careers or releasing humans from a general uh, control of their own lives. Because for me, at least as, as an academic, as, as, as a teacher, chat GPT, I think, can only get somebody so far, right? Like if, if I were to, say, uh, assign an essay that somebody's literally writing facts about a certain thing, then ChatGPT could probably get them about 80% of the way there. It's not going to take them all the way. It's, it's not going to have, for lack of a better word, the voice, right? That you can get, that you can read through somebody's writing, right? Like, I think every person, although there's mimics, you can certainly mimic people's style. Everyone, when you write something, has an individual way of doing it. And as an instructor, you know, if I were only assigning things that that could be um, that somebody could use ChatGPT to generate a 300-word abstract, that to me is not a very high-level pedagogical practice or assignment, right? Like, like you said, rigor is a poorly used and often misused word in academia. But when I think of rigor, I often think of how students are being asked to learn in a particular course. And for most courses, particularly undergraduate level 100, you know, early on the thousand levels, the ones where you have hundreds of students into one single intro seminar, whatever it is, a lot of that information tends to be pretty rote information. You just got to memorize it and regurgitate it and or you might be asked to write a short essay on it. That's where maybe I could see ChatGPT playing some kind of a role because a student could very easily put in the appropriate prompts and get probably a pretty decent paragraph or two or even a page or so 
about a particular topic. Um, and if that's the only thing you're using to assess students' learning, well, yeah, that could be an issue. But for me, that's not the student's fault. That's that's you as an instructor not really engaging somebody into higher ordered or higher level thinking where they actually have to create something that is new based on information they have learned in your class or in a particular seminar or whatever. And so, do I think chat GPT is, is going to mess us all up? No. I think you've got an interesting perspective that we talked about before we started recording this idea of possibly leading to even more of a surveillance state within academia than we already are. And again, I know Canada can be a little different than the US on a lot of things. Um, and I'm not sure I haven't been in higher ed in, in Canada, but from where I am, there's already so much surveillance that goes on with students for things from a lockdown browser where the computer uses your your camera to see if you're sitting at the actual computer taking the test or doing whatever to turn it in the that, plagiarism that sells, check software that everybody is writing <laughs> yeah and, and exactly yeah it's just I, I find those to be ridiculous. And I'm, I'm glad I didn't. I'm glad I finished my undergrad before uh, a lot of yeah. this proctoring software became common because I just see it as antithetical to access. Yes. Um, yes. And I, I don't think that, you know, like you said about ChatGPT in general and in, in academia or education, I think that there is certainly, there are, it's, it's you know, there are all, there are always use cases. There are always times where things go badly and and some, you know, there are always, I'm sure there is some tiny, like, for example, you're in kinesiology, right? The, the fear of, you know, the fear of plagiarism, if from teaching, and I don't know what your course are this semester, but hypothetically, let's pick two that I've had some experience with. If I'm teaching a class about um, accessibility, inclusivity, and parasport, and the foibles of that and the history of parasport and da 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 da, which I have guessed spoken for classes like that in the past, then okay, that, that's one. That's one situation, right? Versus in the same faculty, a human kinetics class, where we're actually more talking about math and science than we are anything social. Gonna have radically different relationships to these tools and to plagiarism and hey, did you get that research from where'd you get it from? Da 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 da. Um, yeah, it, it's surveillance capitalism of the worst type when we get into this proctoring stuff. And somewhat unpopular opinion, and I'm aware that I'm talking to a former uh, teacher, not that you aren't a teacher now, but like teacher in the non-uni sense teacher, of the teacher. word. Yeah. Yeah. That not a lot of faculty are taught how to teach. Oh, no. And I think this is why... That's surprising for so many people. And yeah. I think this is why the proctoring thing comes up again. And even the ones that are taught how to teach, I did three years of an education degree, have some pretty prescriptive ideas about what learning looks like. Um, oh, looks most definitely. and sounds yeah. like... I was joking around on Twitter yesterday because I got about four or five teachers following me, uh, local <laughs> student teachers. Follow me on Twitter, which automatically means that I know a, uh, a professor from my previous life has mentioned me in a class. Mentioned you, yeah. Yeah. Nice. Um, which is cool. 
uh, of guests spoken there too. Um, I think it's just there are times where the book gets thrown at the proverbial book gets thrown at a student for plagiarism, and I worry that tools like this become another excuse to batten down the hatches yet again on what rigor looks like when in reality, I mean, hell, like this was this was conversations I was having while while you know being in grad school, like. Can we imagine a collaborative thesis, like a co-written thesis for two people's master's degrees? I mean, I don't see why we can't, but we don't because it's like, here's the right. prescriptive thing. Yeah, we can't. Of course, we couldn't do that. Yeah. yeah. That's too far outside of people's purview. But. Yeah. Meanwhile, you know, any scientific paper that has only one author you'd look at with a little bit of suspect, right? There's a little skepticism. Yeah. But in some methods you can't do without somebody else. You need, you almost need to have that second person or third person or however many. I think for me, a lot of this, whether it's chat GPT or any of the others that would fall under, um, you know, surveillance and in, in the, in the classroom, for me, it's what it signals to students is that you are starting from a place where you don't trust them. You're you're automatically saying that I think you're going to cheat, so I'm going to do all these things to make sure you don't cheat. And in my experience, I've taught for over 10 years now, if all the way from kindergarten to college to graduate students. I was going to say, is plagiarism a worry with five-year-olds? Well, you'd be surprised. <laughs> Some people may worry about it, well, at least parents doing the work, right? And you always know which parents did the science fair projects. <laughs> um, but, you know, starting from a place to say, I'm using lockdown browser, I'm going to make you use Turnitin, I'm going to do these other things. You're signaling to students, I don't trust you. And you're also signaling to students, in my opinion, that the work I am providing for you a, isn't going to be of your interest, and B, is something that you can plagiarize or you can pull from these other areas. If, if we're using a pedagogical practice in which we are trying to engage with our students, disabled or not, that <laughs> ideally you want them to find some interest and engage in the topic that you have. And I know that can't be done for every topic and it, you're certainly never going to reach every person in a classroom. It's, it's impossible. If you try to do that as a teacher, you'll burn yourself out very quickly and they'll end up hating you. All of them will hate you instead of just a couple of them. But even for students in my classes who I know are not going to go on and do the, you know, in my disability course, they're not going to go on and do work with disabled populations. I still hope that how I present the course and how I challenge them to think about disability, that they will take that lesson with them somewhere else because it's applied to them. It's required them to engage in it. And I, because I just happen to fall down radical rabbit holes quite often and I still consider myself a punk and I've learned and read a lot about the idea of ungrading and unschooling over the last couple of years and I do what's called unessays now in most of my undergraduate classes graduates are still a little different cuz we're, we're trying to guide them toward more scholarly writing and and 
all that. But for my undergraduates, hypothetically, yes, however you define scholarly, and it's different at every institution and every person you talk to. But for my students, I do this unessay where I try to get them to engage, to do something. Obviously, it's involved in movement and involved in health and involves uh, disability, but it can be anything else, right? They could write an essay, but they could also paint a a portrait. They could write a letter to a politician. They could do a podcast. They could, you know, there's infinite number of things they could do. And to be honest, I hope somebody jumps in and does something with ChatGPT because I want to see what, how they could use that in a way that could be productive. Because I, for me, technology, it's not going anywhere. <laughs> it's immensely disruptive, as we all know. It can be immensely destructive, as we also all know. But I think it also has opportunity for benefit. Yeah, like I've seen... It has the opportunity. Like I've seen on Twitter, uh, memory doesn't stick as to who did it. But somebody put in like, write me a land acknowledgement for this area of Canada. And it it puts all of the... um, you know, all of the Probably typical sense somebody wrote it themselves. Well, yeah. no, it's, the, well, it's kind of, I would say it's the, ob- it, it shows the lack of care, quite frankly, that often goes into these documents because they're of rote, right? Yeah. So it's like, I'm here on the, that's true. You know, a very typical standard thing. Or, um, what was it another one I saw? Saw, no, it was something creative. Right. But the point of them using it within that teaching environment was like the educators who were using it were saying, like, this is this shows us how you know this is the this is one example that we have one it can spark interest of students two you know it it for this particular project it was like right if I tell you give the example of Shakespeare's sonnet right if I say you know write me a bad sonnet <laughs> uh, you know write me a weird limerick right like look at look at the ways in which our standards for what these forms are. I just pick poetry because it's easy. Um, yeah, apologies to my English professor who want, one of my English professors who once got a sonnet for me in a foreign poetry class called "What AI Hate Sonnet." Um, yeah, it was pretty. I was pretty difficult to deal with sometimes. Shocking that. Uh, yeah, it, it goes back to that pedagogical root, doesn't it? Of like, what would you like? Do I think we need to warn students about the fact that ChatGPT is a flagrant ethical violation if it's part of an assignment that isn't, you know, take this prompt and oh, give yeah. you to talk about AI or whatever, right? Yeah, of course it's important. You know, I have professors jokingly will post on social media like, ah, did my plagiarism lecture today, right? It's not going away either, right? I mean, AI exists and it, it, it's a Pandora's box, right? Once you've introduced technology into the world, it's not going to go away. It, Chat GPT is not going to disappear. It's I mean, it's if we really, grow if we really want to get, if we really want to get, you know, deep into AI, if you're writing a document that's academic, purely hypothetical, but if you're writing a document for academic and you put two, you've used two words in the same sentence, and Google says, "Hey, use the two sentences in the same sentence," and you think one of Google's synonyms is better than the one you would have picked by the letter of the law, you've, you know. Whatever. Technically. Thankfully, neither of us are associate deans, so we don't have to worry about that. However, um, you know, the, we're talking about AI like it, like ChatGPT is some new thing, as if we don't all have Siri and Google Assistant in our pocket. Like, 
Oh yeah. These yeah. are they these exist. are tools, and at, I'm going to transition this to our quip of the week, just because it's a it's a simple trend, a simple jump from that tech to um to uh, to my quip of the week. Today's sponsor is Kitcaster. Did you know that podcasts are a great way to grow your personal and business brand voice? Here's a secret. We all want to feel connected to the brands we buy from. And what better way to humanize a brand than through sharing your story on a podcast? Kitcaster is a podcast booking agency that specializes in developing real human connections through podcast appearances. If you're an expert in your field, have a unique story to share, or an interesting point of view, it's time you explore the world of podcasting with Kitcaster. You can expect a completely customized concierge service from the staff of communication experts. Kitcaster is your secret weapon in the podcasting business. Your audience is waiting to hear from you. Go to kitcaster.com backslash dismove, etc. to apply for a special offer for the friends and listeners of this particular podcast. I'm being general again. Uh, apologies, but... Um... Tony just announced it's New Year. Hey, there you go. Maybe, maybe time that's to be my specific. New Year's resolution to be a little bit more specific <laughs> in my crypts of the week. Uh, there's been some real movement, particularly from Sony on accessible game uh, controllers. Xbox and Microsoft have had one for for quite a while, and and Sony is quote unquote catching up in a way. Um, I've seen some some journalists post about how oh finally. You know, it's hard to be a games journalist if I can only review, you know, so much of this work. Um, and, and further conversations uh, from from people in the advocacy space. So, so my trip of the week is the folks who, you know, because that doesn't happen in a vacuum. Um, you know, gamers and games journalists and, and people with uh, disabled people who work in these uh, game design spaces um, and, and tech companies uh, to make that a priority because it was really easy, I would argue, in the early days of these conversations, in the early days of the Xbox adaptive controller to talk about it from a very um, inspo porn sort of way. It's not that that doesn't happen still, but I think for me, what this shows is that it's become a deeper through that activism, advocacy, having conversations about it, covering it. That um, it's gone to that next stage of like actually being integrated rather than just being integrated from an inspo perspective. And we've seen a lot of accessibility features in um, various video games, Last of Us being one of them, which is now, you know, a high topic of conversation with the TV series. Um, So, yeah, that's my Crip of the Week for this week. And how about for you, Andy? Yes. So I do have somebody specific and I don't know if they listen, but I did tell them to. So maybe they'll listen <laughs> at some point and they'll hear this. Uh, but my Crip of the Week is Lori Gray. And Lori Gray works for BORP, which is the Bay Area Outreach uh, and Recreation Programs. And they've existed in the Bay Area for, oh goodness, from the 70s. And they do all different kinds of stuff. Uh, that is related to adapted recreation, adapted sport. They do uh, hiking retreats. They do climbing stuff, canoeing, you know, all the different kinds of things. Lori works uh, in their their sort of their recreative programs where she organizes a lot of the hiking things. And we got a chance to meet when I was out there in San Francisco, uh, and and she showed me all around and, and welcomed me to the entire 
Borp crew. I crashed their their holiday party, which was a very fun uh, afternoon and unexpected. But uh, Lori's been doing this work for so long, and I don't think she gets enough recognition for the stuff she does. And so that's my Crip of the Week. And when I was there, she led me through a 15-minute like meditative spoken hike, which uh, she had mentioned uh, was something that they had started doing during the pandemic. Because she would say, well, we kept our hiking uh, opportunities going through the pandemic virtually. And I was like, how do you do a virtual hike? And she said, oh, well, something like this. And she just went into her whole spiel where I mean, she literally took me on a hike somewhere in the Berkeley Hills, and it was really meditative and enjoying, enjoyable. So I'm, I might jump in on some of their future virtual offerings if possible. If you're in the Bay Area, I suggest you check out Borp. If you're somebody who works in that type of area, I would suggest you go out and do um, take a look into them, into looking their organization. They've got a lot of good resources. I'm sure they're willing to help if you're not in the Bay Area and are looking for that. So yeah, well. All right, John. Well, that's it for today. It was good catching up with you. And I'm excited for for the year. We're going to yeah, see how far this for, goes uh, and where we go with it. Excited for what we get up to and who we end up talking to. Exactly. It's going to be a fun trip. So I'll see you in a couple weeks and oh, we'll see everybody too. See you later. Happy New Year, everybody. Happy New Year. Disability Movement Etc. is a Blank Owl production. You can find out more about what we're doing, including past episodes, show notes, and transcripts at blankowl.com. This show was produced by John and I. Audio recording, editing, and mixing was done by me. The music for this episode was composed by Adrian Doc Blust. If you'd like to support our efforts, head over to support.blankowl.com. Early supporters will have access to full-length interviews with show guests and opportunities to buy show merch for anybody else. You can also support the show by rating it and reviewing. It really does help. Thanks for listening, and I hope you all join us next time.